Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Picture the scene, folks. You're in an oyster bar waiting to devour some delicious bivalves. What are you ordering to drink? A dry white wine or a glass of bubbly, perhaps? Or maybe an even drier gin or vodka martini? Chances are you probably aren't thinking of a fruity, herbaceous, liqueur-based highball. But therein lies the historical roots of both today's cocktail and its hero ingredient. A quintessential British summer staple, the Pimm's Cup has, over the years, developed notable ties with tennis tournaments, the US Bartenders Guild, and even gained some fans in New Orleans, which shouldn't be too surprising given that city's love of alcohol, but is worthy of note given the sheer competition on the cocktail front in the Big Easy. To teach us more about this beloved punch and its iconic eponymous ingredient, we're joined by Aaron Gregory Smith. Based in San Francisco, Aaron is the executive director of the US Bartenders Guild. It's a title he'll have held for 10 years come this September. While his own career in bartending and hospitality began at the tender age of 16. Don't worry though, folks, it was in Texas where that is very much legal. So how about it? Are you ready to pull out the muddler, forage for some borage leaves, and perhaps even turn to the flavor Bible? It's the Cocktail College podcast, and the time has come to prepare some Pim's Cups. New York City and San Francisco coming together for today's episode of Cocktail College as we're joined by Aaron Gregory Smith. Aaron, welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, excited. Also, some folks, you know, hearing that, New York, San Francisco, perhaps seeing the episode titled The Pimm's Cup, they might be thinking we're we're crossing the Atlantic for today's episode, but we're not, or at least we're not as in both of ourselves. Right. So, you know, starter for 10, why are we covering the Pimm's Cup today? What does this cocktail mean to yourself? Well, um, I... I I think there's a lot of people who's, uh, or a lot of people in the U.S. whose experience with the with the Pimm's Cup comes from a a, a little uh, little place in New Orleans called the Napoleon House, where <laughs> that is true. well known for this drink. And um, I think that that's probably uh, uh, my own story of of a first coming across the drink was uh, was at the Napoleon House and in a little plastic cup uh, with some Pimm's and maybe some ginger ale and uh, mint leaf on top, and and that was about it. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it really is. I, I think it's notable that on that front there, you know, New Orleans, what an iconic city for cocktails. So the fact that this this British transplant, as we'll get into, somehow finds a name and a following in that city with so much competition. I don't know. It's wonderful. But for sure, we're going to get into that one. Um, we're talking about this already, though, like everyone knows what we're on about. Pim's Cup, or is it Pim's, whatever. But for those who aren't familiar, maybe some folks have tried them, but they don't know what's in it. Can you just give us some background there on, on the ingredients of this drink? And basically, what kind of cocktail is it? What style of cocktail is it? Yeah, well, um, you know, in the US, we call it the Pim's Cup, uh, you know, the, but Pim's in and of itself fits the, the categorical definition of, of, of a cup. Uh, and a cup is, uh, is a cocktail that, that sort of came together as um, over time, the, the, the batch cocktails, the punches that were in vogue in the 1800s, um, started to move into single serves. Um, and so you might think of a cup as, um, as instead of a batched drink, a, a single service uh, of, of relative, kind of related to a sangria. There's always a wine component. There's always a sweet slash citrus component. Um, and then as it's served, um, uh, it, it has evolved to accept a lot of different garnishes, herb and fruit garnishes. So right now, if you order a Pimm's cup somewhere, you're likely to receive um, Pimm's, some sort of soda on top, whether that be lemonade, as it's called in the UK, or 7-Up here, uh, ginger <laughs> ale. You might, uh, you, you, ginger beer is often used. Um, so you'll receive that Pimm's, perhaps a fortifying spirit of some sort, uh, and and then um, herbs, berries, or, or other types of vegetables like cucumbers are very popular here in the U.S., uh, as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great example of one of those ones that really does show that divide that perhaps exists between drinking culture, again, across the pond there and here in the US. I don't think they're two wildly different versions of the drinks, but for sure there there may be some differences there too. It's funny, you know, prior to coming to this, and I should put my hand up here and say, I, you know, I've enjoyed many a PIMS in my life, but it's not one that I drink all that regularly. And I've always thought about this as kind of like a punch before I mm-hmm. came to this. But again, that probably stems from just drinking it in British pubs that, you know, as far as they go when it comes to cocktails, it's it's PIMS and, uh, and G&Ts. That's about it. So right. maybe no surprise there. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty related. It's 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 related. It's an early early version of a of cocktails. Cups are in general, um, and then Pims being a very specific uh, type of cup that was popularized uh, in in a uh, in a restaurant um, named after uh, the owner whose last name was Pims. That always helps, you know. When we look into the history, and and we're about to dive into the history here too, but having a figure whose name is attached to the drink definitely does help those folks like Dave Wondrich when they want to go down their fantastical deep dives on, on, you know, looking up and pulling at the threads of history. I'm sure that helps there, but why don't you tell us that story now? You know, what can you tell us about the, the origins of this drink and, and bring us back up to, I guess, 2023? Yes. Well, um, it's a, it's a, you know, I'm not a not a historian. You mentioned Dave Wondrich. I defer to anything you've read that Dave Wondrich has ever <laughs> said about this drink should be prioritized alone. way above anything else I say. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 bottled pims is you know a uh, an early version of a ready to drink cocktail that is all the rage in 2023. But it, <laughs> it really dates all the way back um, to uh, to this formulation too, where where people were mixing wine were. We're fortifying it or or stabilizing it with sweeteners um, and and uh, to be able to serve it over longer periods. Oh, in Pim's um, in the Pim's drink, uh, you know Pim's cup, as it's referred to. One of the other things that people are looking for there is something that's relatively low alcohol. Uh, and this is the Napoleon House story: is that they wanted a drink that people could drink many of um, without becoming too intoxicated and uh, without any fortifying spirits. The Pim's cup cocktail is relatively low alcohol. Uh, so you can drink um, many of them over a course of a uh, of an afternoon and and maintain your composure, um, which is which is a uh, uh, which is you know good for uh, good for a lot of different environments, especially hot New Orleans, uh, where you want to uh, be able to sip on things while you're enjoying your mufflata sandwich, or perhaps a uh, perhaps a a tennis tournament in London, or a tennis we'll tournament in Wimbledon. Yes, correct. <laughs> That's another place where this drink has been very very popularized. Um, in in the in a warm grass uh, grass based tennis tournament, right? Absolutely. You know, you're only you're you're guaranteed a couple of weeks, well, many weeks of rain in the UK, but none more so than during Wimbledon. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's going to rain on that day. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Um, so you know, as we're talking about the history of Pims, um, you know, I'd, I'd be remiss to not talk about its uh, really important role in the founding of the organization I represent, the United States Bartenders Guild. Uh, so I'm the executive director of the organization, and and I came across this story as we're, we're looking into our history and, um, you know, validating our founding, our founding story. It turns out uh, that the United States Bartenders Guild actually started as the West Coast version of, uh, or the West Coast chapter of the UKBG. You know, as, as we all know, prohibition um, decimated bar culture, bartending in the United States, um, not unlike, you know, what we just went through with, uh, with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, afterwards, you know, people were returning to the United States and uh, bartending culture started to come back once prohibition was repealed. Um, as well as, you know, post-World War II, there were just all these groups of people internationally gathering together and, and sharing ideas, and bartenders were one of those groups. So um, a, a former UK bartender uh, had moved to Southern California. Uh, his name was Angus uh, Ingarosa, um, Italian originally, and then uh, bartender in the UK and, and, and moved to Southern California. And so he had been a member of the UKBG and knew that he, uh, when he moved to California, he wanted to 
um, create that same community. Uh, and, and so was reaching out to his old colleagues and um, there was a, a trustee on the UK BG's uh, board of directors uh, by the name of Jack Finney. And uh, Jack Finney happened to be the owner of the Pim's restaurant in the 1940s. Um, and so when uh, Pim's decided to launch in the US, they sent Jack Finney as, a, as an ambassador uh, to launch this in the California market. And so Angus and Jack had a number of meetings and uh, they talked on uh, Jack's first trip of introducing, uh, introducing Pim's to the market. And then uh, Jack came back another time and shortly thereafter, uh, we start seeing the first uh, recognition of the West Coast chapter of the UKBG uh, that was uh, that was brought really to uh, uh, was was supported by the launch of PIMS in Southern California. What a fantastic story right there. And um, I mean, I'm sure there's there's more than a handful of our British listeners right now thinking, yep, you know, you have us to thank for the U.S. bartender skill. We absolutely And PIMS do. in particular, like, you know, that, that tie-in. I love it. Very, very unexpected. It is. It is. And and our organization did start in Southern California and 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 stayed uh, mostly contained there for a very long time. But over the last seventy five years, now has has expanded quite uh, quite drastically. A- another little piece of USVG history: um, we had uh, so U- U.S. Bartenders Guild um, and UKBG were all part of this International Bartenders Association, and. Um, and every year, the International Bartender Association has a cocktail competition. And they have been doing this for at least 75 years, but even before the, U- the U.S. joined. And um, for a lot of the members of the, the, the early years of the United States Bartenders Guild, um, it was such an honor to go and represent the United States at this global bartending competition, uh, cocktail competition. And um, and so one of our uh, one of our former uh, organizational presidents is doing a lot of he's our he's our uh, historian, uh, you know, for and and just loves digging into this stuff. And he actually came across a recipe uh, that won our national competition uh, in 1951. Uh, it was by a bartender named uh, Walter Simpson, and it has pims in it. And uh, the cocktail is called the luxury cocktail. And um, we recreated a bunch of these drinks for a recent seminar. And the luxury cocktail was a was a big crowd pleaser uh, recently, you know, so it has stood the test of time from 1951 to today. Wow. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, yeah, I love those ties right there. I'd also like for us to tie up a couple of threads to, uh, you know, bringing some, uh, bringing all of that information together. So you mentioned, you know, prior to PIMS coming over to the US, you have a man named James PIMS, James Pym, yeah. sorry, not James Pym's. Pym's would, you know. Pym. <laughs> a man named James Pym. And he runs a restaurant, as you mentioned, over there in the UK. That's a, that's a uh, oyster house, I believe, correct? Yes, yes. Oyster house. And um, that may be as much as I know <laughs> about that part of the story. Yeah, I, I think, you know, my, my understanding is that he has an oyster house. I believe it's close to London's old, or it was close to the Billingsgate Fish Market, which is still around. I don't know whether it's the same building, but the, the fish market still exists. I know that for sure from my old chefing days in London. Um, and then what? He starts this, like you said, this basically this OG RTD brand that is based on gin, but not exclusively gin. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, he had a number of different versions of, of the, of the drink. So there's a gin based one, which was the number one. And then he had a scotch based one and, um, and, uh, uh, brandy variant and as well as vodka. And you, you actually can see this, uh, you'll see the Pimm's cup when you see it on menus. Um, occasionally, uh, people are are naming it the 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 Pim's Cup number, you know, two hundred and seventy six, um, and it has mezcal in it or something. You know, it 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 actually That's crazy. Pim's Pim's corresponds extremely well with just about any other base spirit. Um, uh, on on that note, um, uh, the bar that I operated and uh, and was the managing director for for many years uh, prior to coming to the USBG is called Fifteen Romolo. And we actually offered it on the menu with pick your base spirit. Um, so you could, it was a Pimm's cup, same recipe all the way through. And you choose what what spirit you want to put in it. If you want to use tequila, rum, 
the most popular was, of course, gin mm-hmm. with uh, with tequila as a close second in that in that bar. Fantastic. But it worked great with whiskey, anything. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think that's a great point. And I think from here on in, a good way for us to differentiate, I guess, the two so that people can stay on track because I'm, I'm confusing myself here. I guess if we talk about the Pim's Cup as the cocktail and Pim's right. as the brand slash liqueur that might help us just differentiate between the well, two. And yeah, the, the confusion is in the very name, right? Because Pim's is technically the cup and the cocktail is a Pim's Cup cocktail, but we refer to it as a Pim's Cup, right? Which is, uh, which is confusing. But it's, we'll, uh, now we can clarify that. <laughs> it's very confusing. But yeah, and the num- so Pim's number one, like you said, is gin. Uh, I think I have in the notes here, number two, scotch. Number three, brandy. Uh, and some other ones there, rye, rum, vodka. So basically, yeah, plug and play. Do we know if any of these other based spirit versions are still produced by the brand, which I believe is currently owned by Diageo, but um, it's certainly a, a, a major conglomerate. Do we know if any of those other ones are produced or it's still, it's all in on number one? I think it's all in on number one to the best of my knowledge. I think they did a, a, a short run of of the vodka number six uh for a period of time but it wasn't it wasn't permanent it was a what do they call those limited time offerings yeah yeah one of those like <laughs> seasonal offerings which is quite funny because this is a very seasonal cocktail at least right. in my mind yeah absolutely and, and interestingly enough um the uh uh guinness is the was the owner of pims and then guinness merged with another company to form diageo and pims sort of came along for the ride um yeah. so that all happened in 1997 yeah Guinness, by the way, I mean, this is a complete sidebar, but um, now confirmed as the number one selling beer, I'm guessing value, volume or value or both in the UK. Wow. Uh, that's, that kind of shocks me. I mean, it's a stark contrast over here in the US where I think num- that four of the top five best selling beers are are light beers such as Bud Light, Mick Ultra right. and others are available, but you know, um, wow. They, they, I guess they drink a lot of Guinness over there in the UK. Well, I, I know so. they do. <laughs> I've contributed to that historically, but not for a while. <laughs> yeah, not for a bit. Yeah. Uh, so that's, um, you know, we're in- interesting talking, uh, uh, just about the ownership of these companies and, and how it changes over time. Um, and you know, the, while the, the history of it goes back so far and the, the culture around the, the drink, um, who actually produces it does change hands quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, it's it's always great though to see that these you know these brands maintain their lives, especially ones such as this. You know, so historic and so pivotal to one particular drink. Um, I was doing a little YouTube deep dive before this, or not deep dive, a light dive on YouTube. Okay, and it seems like they haven't really, because I recall commercials with Pims growing up. And I was like, I wonder if, you know, they're actively pushing this in any way. And it seems like they haven't had any new commercials for like 15 years, at least that I can see on YouTube anyway. That might be completely false, but interesting that I guess it just kind of endures on its own. On its own. Yeah, it's got its own. It it doesn't uh, doesn't require a whole lot to uh, to keep it moving. And it's available, you know, across the US, which is not the case for a lot of yeah. spirits in this category or, or products in this category. Sometimes it's harder to find, but Pims is available pretty much everywhere. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and also, you know, final point on this historical thing there. If I'm at an oyster bar or an oyster restaurant, oyster house, I believe, is the, is the wording they use in the Oxford Companion. A, a, a kind of fruity, citrusy, highball, liqueur, cup, whatever, you know, we'll get into that. That is not what I'm thinking of that I'm going to go for, right? I, I find that it's fascinating. But. Yeah, I mean, because I would, you know, pretty much go for a martini, right? That's, 100%. that's uh, the clear winner. Um, but uh, but I think it may have, it has a lot to do with the herbal aspect of it, you know? Um, and in those, you know, the mint, the the um, borage, you know, which for which the cucumber has become a substitute in the U.S., um, but those sort of crisp and um, those crisp herbs do complement, I think, in a, in a really nice way with uh, to to that oyster experience, to that seafood uh, that seafood bar experience. Very nice, yeah, and and that's a great segue right there because as you mentioned up top there at the at the top of the show, this is a you know this is a a fruity cocktail that has a sparkling component. 
goes pretty heavy when it comes to the garnish and fresh ingredients, kind of like a sangria, like you said. Yes. Um, those are pivotal to the the identity of this drink. But profile-wise, what are you expecting? What are you looking for from a, a perfectly executed version of this cocktail? I would say now, uh, the modern version of it, it's going to be refreshing and, and crisp um, and just a sort of a powerhouse of of flavors that are in the, that lighter range. Um, and those flavors are, are really set off by having this core base of a, of a richer wine, uh, some, you know, some tannin in that, in that wine based cup, um, that allow those, that cucumber, that, that higher citrus note to really sing off of the base. Fantastic. And, and, and I think, yeah, from there as well, we can go directly into the ingredients. Yes. And again, this can become confusing. Um, so I think because you mentioned, you know, when, when you've run bar programs with this cocktail on, it's, it's almost a kind of Mr. Potato Head where you can pick your base spirit. Yes. Is that the case if you're using PIMS number one, the ingredient, or is that you're doing something separate? We did actually, yeah. So we would do, we would fortify the PIMS cup in, 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 at 15 Romolo with another base spirit. So we would do a split base, you know, one ounce of PIMS, one ounce of, of a higher um, alcohol by volume spirit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in, in that drink, it was a split base, PIMS and other base you'd like. Um, we added some fresh lemon juice. That's not maybe in the classic uh, pims that you might be thinking of if you order at a pub in uh, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, but in in the US, typically there is a citrus component to brighten it up um, and balance. And then you definitely have a sparkling component. So a soda. Uh, you could use a, a ginger ale, ginger beer. Um, you could even do a bartender's ginger ale, which is you know for those of us who worked in in. Uh, in, in nightclubs is a seven up with a splash of Coke and maybe a dash of bitters. Um, you can pull that <laughs> off too, right? Um, so, uh, and then garnish is, is such a big component, but on the liquid side, you've got to have some sort of, uh, carbonation. I think you could even do a, a I think there's even a version of the PIMS that's uh, a Royale where they use uh, sparkling wine instead of a, a sparkling soda. Oh, now you're starting to talk by language hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. <laughs> so and then and then we get then we can go into a completely different conversation about garnish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically base alcohol front there you like to split it. You think that's a good way to I guess on you know one hand maintain some kind of alcoholic presence there cuz whatever pims comes in at abv wise yeah. uh we're, we're we're also diluting it with other ingredients so it's good to have another strong base ingredient in there base spirit yes that's that was sort of our take on it um this was you know i think if uh on a on a brunch menu maybe you want to you you don't want to fortify it um or or at a at a tennis tournament maybe you don't need to fortify it we also um found fortifying it with fino sherry was really really nice to keep oh, the nice. alcohol by volume a little bit low, um, but not have the cocktail dominated by by the Pim's flavor and just really supported by it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really wonderful. And yeah, I'm just doing a quick search here, and it seems it's around the 25% ABV yes. mark. So um, again, this is some kind of mix of you know we could also I think you mentioned it earlier kind of think of it like a vermouth in a way but yes. it's fortified with gin and it has these botanicals and other ingredients and maybe a slightly sweet profile that's that's right. the pims number one base exactly and and vermouth is more uh, you know has has is more specific it's fortified with with great base spirit mm-hmm. right um, and 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 sometimes gets up into that twenty five range. This mm-hmm. is a this is like a, a a a vermouth, but with a different fortifying spirit that adds its own flavors to it. And its origin is a little bit different than vermouth. I, I I'm almost tempted to call this Britain's answer to Campari in a way. I mean, flavor profile very different, but, very different, yeah. But ideal, you know, ideologically kind of similar in some ways. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. it uh, it has a place for sure. <laughs> now, um, yeah, and, and now I think where the where the Pim's Cup really, um, you know, can take so many wild variations is on that garnish aspect. And in the UK, from what I understand, mint and and borage are the two uh, the two primary herbs that you would expect to find um, in a drink, and, and maybe some berries, um, maybe some strawberry here and there. Uh, but in the in the US, borage is not a very common herb, 
So we've substituted that with uh, a, something with a similar flavor profile, which is the, the cucumber. Um, and so in the US, you're, you're likely to find this drink with cucumber, maybe some strawberry, definitely mint, um, and probably some ginger component somewhere, mm -hmm. whether that's in the ginger ale, ginger beer, or perhaps even in a ginger syrup. Yeah. And 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 I I'll probably counter by saying as well that I think that that borage, I've come across it again while working in kitchens and definitely mm. worked with it you know through the lens of certain seafood dishes. So I, immediately I'm going back to that you know that oyster house, right? But when I think about those pims pims cups that are served in pubs, I'm, I'm you know cucumber is the first one that actually comes to mind along with strawberries, and then with strawberries you got the whole Wimbledon connection right there too. Yeah, absolutely. Your preference, therefore, on the... Because, you know, lemonade, like you said, it's similar. It's basically lemon and lime-flavored soda that's that's sweet, right? E equivalent to Sprite or something. Yeah, Sprite, 7-Up. That's what I understand to be the most equivalent. And some people um, use... There's a, um, a few... Another mixer, kind of less well-known, called Bitter Lemon Soda um, that can also be used in this drink uh, that can be really, really nice. Um, as that sparkling component. Mm -hmm. And on your own personal preference from the additional spirit that you're adding, would you be a, a gin guy as well for that? Probably gin. Yeah. I mean, I really like it with, uh, with scotch as well. Um, uh, I like to drink scotch, but, uh, I think for the pims, I really like that gin. Cause what I'm looking for is something that's, uh, you know, that, that is accentuating the, the herbal, uh, components of the cocktail and keeps it pretty bright, you know. And gin is gin is such a great base for all of these um, all of these herbal citrus notes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm starting to also see some ties between this and the Bloody Mary in a way. Again, nothing from a flavor perspective, but just you know ties to. I can imagine people enjoying this drink at brunch, but also it just being so versatile when it comes to the the different styles of spirit. Because, I mean, how does how does an aged spirit like scotch or rye or brandy, like how does that alter this cocktail versus using an unaged spirit? What, how does that change the profile? Um, I would say it just makes it richer. Um, you know, what you're going to start to pull out of the pims probably is a little bit more of the wine tannin um, and a little bit more of the sort of um, there, there is an orange liqueur in Pims. You know, they're very secretive about the actual ingredients, but we do know that there is a there is an orange liqueur. So you're going to get a little bit more of those lower end. Um, so the the Scotch or the the those aged spirits are going to tie in to that richer orange flavor, um, as opposed to some of the uh, some of the zest you get on orange that's very bright and, and acidic and a little bit floral. You're going to dig in a little bit more deeply into into those richer tones of of more of a um, maybe uh, a cooked orange or, a, you know, like a, a flambéed orange. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned citrus. You classically like to go lemon there. Is there a reason that you that you prefer lemon over, say, lime? Or I'm guessing other citrus is probably not acidic enough. So between those two, why are you, why are you inching towards lemon? I think it really depends on the other components that you choose. Um, I would lean toward lemon if I'm trying to match the cucumber flavor. Mm -hmm. um, if I were using a different type of, a different type of, of muddled uh, fruit that yeah. called for lime, uh, you know, if you were using some other sort of tropical fruit and, and tequila, for instance, maybe you'd want lime. Or if you were going to use uh, a rum base um, and, you know, a, um, uh, per, perhaps like a, a, a stone fruit, you might want to go lime just to, to brighten it up in a different way. Mm-hmm. What's the wildest thing you've tried in this or had someone order this and be like, actually, that works? Yeah, I, I would say um, probably uh, we did it with Geneva at one point. And, yeah. uh, and I think uh, we did that for a special event um, when, uh, <laughs> when Bowls was launching over here. And, uh, um, and that worked out really nicely. Actually, and we um, we chose uh, we chose some different fruits, so we we used gooseberries for that. Nice. I mean, it instead of uh, instead of cucumber, and it was a really nice, you know, Northern European. Yeah, talk uh, about change. talk about splitting the difference between gin and whiskey right there, just straight yes, down the middle. Exactly, exactly. So maybe not too crazy. Yeah. What about aquavit? I'm always looking for a home for my aquavit. Yeah, absolutely works with aquavit. We 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 did that too. Uh, yeah, and it works works great. 
Um, and, and strawberry does great with aquavit as well. Might, you might like shift the, the herb from mint to something like tarragon or um, you know, something that's a little bit brighter um, with that aquavit because it's such a, such a strong flavor. It might overpower mint being a little bit too subtle, but I can imagine like thyme or oregano would really blast off of that really nicely. You know what? I'm suddenly, I you know, leading up to this, talking through all of this, as someone who likes to pack things neatly into boxes, I'm like, there's too many variables here. There's yeah. so much going on. But I've landed upon somewhere that I think, how do you feel about this? I pull out, I believe the book over here in the US is called the Flavor Bible. We call okay. it the Flavor Thesaurus in the UK. Or maybe okay. it's, you, are you familiar with the one I'm on I, about? I'm familiar, yes. Yeah. So maybe this is the cocktail where you pull that out and you're like, which, where, where are my flavor friends here? Like, you yes. know, with my caraway and my aquavit, okay, where's the fresh herb I'm going with that? Where's the fresh fruit? And like really just, you know, hundreds of different spins on this one, one seemingly Absolutely. simple drink. You could play with it in, in, in so many different directions. That's, that's really the fun of the cocktail. Um, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned the, the, the flavor Bible. I was, I was talking about that cocktail, the luxury cocktail from the 1951 competition. And that one it uses a banana liqueur in, in, the, in the cocktail wow. with it and lime juice, um, along with a, a little bit more fortification from gin, uh, a bit of, uh, of vermouth too, and then uh, shaking it up. So Pimm's is incredibly versatile. You know, um, in and of itself, uh, you know, it, it maybe is not something you're going to drink on the rocks, um, but it's so versatile and it, it adds just such an interesting savory herbal component to, to whatever you're adding with it. It's just a great base. They came up with something really special. Yeah, such a, such a versatile ingredient and drink, as you mentioned there. We're going to have to do this later on in the show too when we get to our final questions, but I'm going to have to now also force your hand slightly when I now ask you for a recipe and preparation for this drink, which would be your preferred one. But I also do like to ask our guests at this point that it also maintains the, the, the kind of soul of the drink, the classic version of the drink, if yeah. that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the number one selling cocktail at the, at the restaurant that I worked at, 15 Romo, I'll give that, that build because it's the one I could probably make in my sleep. Fantastic. Um, I've made hundreds of them a night for, you know, 10 years. So, um, what the way that we do it, we do make a homemade ginger syrup uh, at, at at that bar, um, and so we use ginger syrup. But we've tested this with a lot of different uh, a lot of different things, and um, ginger beer or a really good ginger ale works just as well. So um, what we do is muddle cucumbers into the bottom of the of the glass. Um, you know, uh, a, a little bit of mint. Don't muddle it too hard, but you know, get some aromatics coming out of it. Um, and then add uh, the ginger syrup and some uh, fresh lemon juice, about uh, half an ounce of, of fresh lemon juice. Then um, combine that with an ounce of, of Pimm's uh, and an ounce of gin is the more traditional, but again, we can substitute any, uh, any spirit that you like, whatever your preference is. And then um, shake that part up uh, and then strain it into uh, a fresh glass over ice and top it with soda water. Um, so that, uh, I guess we, we would do a dash of bitters in there as well, uh, at, at a certain point and then garnish it with a cucumber, a fresh cucumber, unmuddled and, and a mint sprig. So that was our, that was our classic preparation. So no strawberry, sorry. We did not use strawberry, uh, cucumber only. Fantastic. And can I ask you for some quantities there roughly sure. when it comes to the, the cucumber and the mint that we're muddling? Yeah. So I would say, um, uh, between three to five thin slices of cucumber. And then um, as far as leaves go, uh, mint leaves, I would maybe like five to eight. Kind of depends on their size and how fresh yeah. they are. And just a, a, a real light tap on the on the mint. Fantastic. And muddling. I mean, dying art, by the way, just yes. as a sidebar. Not that many muddled cocktails I see these days. Did the mojito kill it for people? The caipirinha? Great <laughs> drinks. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I guess I started where I got my craft bartending start in San Francisco in, you know, 2004, 2005, and it was nothing but muddled drinks, right? Everything was muddled. And so perhaps that carried its way into, into this, uh, being the, being the number one drink. I know people have, have, have passed on it because it is a little bit time consuming. Um, but it, it adds 
quite a bit to cocktails. Um, and it also is just a really nice show. And we know that, um, you know, as, as, as ready to drinks are, are proliferating in the marketplace, um, one of the things you want to go to a bar for is to, to see a little bit of a show. And that I think muddled cocktails give that opportunity. Um, and they don't take that much time once you get, once you get in your routine, you know? Yeah. It's so funny. I mean, I'm not a professional by, you know, in any stretch of the word when it comes to preparing drinks. I'm just an enthusiast. But I I did have this experience last year where I was helping out some friends, you know, some friends were just like workshopping drinks with, uh, you know, an ingredient that they were working on. It was a liqueur, actually. And we're like, okay, how can we reimagine classic cocktails with this ingredient? And we did, you know, we, we went through all the templates from martini to other stuff. And the one unanimous favorite at the end of the day was using this liqueur, uh, but preparing it and preparing the cocktail as if it were a caipirinha. And people are like, uh-huh. this is absolutely amazing. And I'm like, yes. yeah, what a what a overlooked drink that one is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, the, the the bar that I started had a, had a mojito that was incredibly popular, a, a caipirinha that was was uh, very popular. So muddling was a big part of my early bartending, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> career. And it, so it's not something that I shied away from uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But yes, the caipirinha is such an incredibly simple but expressive drink, you yeah. know, because you get um, you get so much richness and depth of flavor out of this ingredient that we usually, you know, lime is is we think of it so much as just a a brightener. Yeah. Um, Right, we use it in, in in the margarita or anything like that, is to sort of balance sweet. And in the caipirinha, it is its own ingredient, and and it really brings out the 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 unique characteristics of the of the cachaça that you're using. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have, have traveled to Brazil a number of times. I'm, I'm married to a Brazilian. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and so um, the even just the regional variation in the cachaça that's available to you down there. Um, you know, they express themselves each so differently uh, in that cocktail, in the caipirinha. Yeah, yeah, no, such a great drink, such a wonderfully complex drink, more more than you would imagine, right? I mm-hmm. mean, drink, drink more of those, drink more Pimm's Cups too. Um, I tell you, also, you talking about the muddling there made me realize why probably the version that I'm accustomed to, and a lot of people will be as well, the one that kind of looks like Wait, did someone dump their fruit salad from the breakfast buffet yes. in their booze? It's probably because the bar had no interest in muddling whatsoever. They're like, we'll just put all the fruit in here anyway. And then and then maybe that's what people came to expect as well. Yes. Yeah. And and a little bit like you mentioned, the Bloody Mary, you know, um, that the garnish of the Bloody Mary is is almost the most similar thing between versions, right? Yeah. And so uh, similar for the Pimm's Cup, you recognize the Pimm's Cup by the garnish as opposed to maybe how it tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, say, same with, the, with the, the Bloody Mary as an example. And one final question for you on your build, actually two. Number one, sure. though, you mentioned um, a, a quantity of ginger syrup. Can you mention that again? But also, is this a cooked ginger syrup? Can you give us a quick idea of how you would prepare that? Yeah, so we would, um, you know, peel the ginger, uh, buzz it down in a food processor uh, to get it pretty small, and then, um, yes, cook it into a syrup. So it was a it was cooked ginger syrup. Then we'd strain out the ginger pulp, you know, mm. and and it would have like a really nice, rich, silky um, ginger. We did two to one uh, sugar to water ratio, so Got it's it. a, a rich simple. A rich simple, and 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 just maybe like simmering or even lower for like. 15 very, minutes? Yeah, very low simmer um, until the sugar is incorporated and then a little bit beyond. Don't want to get it to a boil, just a, a very yeah. light simmer to, to let that go. And we, we also use Demerara sugar for all of our drinks um, there. It was a dark bar, so we didn't need that, you know, that crystal clear simple syrup right. uh, to, to show up the, the, the color of the cocktails. And we liked the Demerara just for that additional sort of uh, weight from, yeah. the, from the molasses. So that was our ginger syrup. As I mentioned, if you get a spicy ginger ale, it recreates that homemade ginger syrup uh, seltzer combination pretty well um, that that it wouldn't be noticeable. So if I were doing this at home, I would definitely go out and buy some, you know, some fever tree ginger ginger ale. Yeah, yeah. It's that. it's it's a real good one, that one. Or the the old Jamaica brand, I forget the exact name. I, yeah, I always um, forget it. Yes, the, the other one. Uh, Vernon's is another one that I'm really that mm. I enjoy working with because it's got that spice to it. Or the Bund- Bundaberg is always. Oh, Bundaberg. 
If you want to head out to Australia there, right? I yes. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, that was, and, and, and how much of that syrup, sorry, makes it into your build? You may have mentioned oh, that. Um, I apologize. So typically, uh, because it's a rich simple, we would use like three quarters of an ounce of, of lemon to a half ounce of the rich simple. Um, if you're using a, a classic simple one-to-one, you would do equal parts. Amazing. Um, and then the other question I had, 10 questions ago when I said I just had one was uh, preferred glassware for you. Do you want to go something like a highball here? Or is that a little I bit think, too? I think you could use a Collins glass. You could, you could use a highball. What, um, what we used is uh, we, we referred to it as our pub glass. You know, it yeah. was a 12 ounce um, glass sort of shaped like an Imperial uh, pint, um, but only 12 ounces. So sort of a smaller version. And that's a glass that's got relatively straight sides and then a flare at the top. Nice. Similar to a Pilsner glass or something? Am I thinking about yeah, something different? Well, there? the Pilsner glass comes out further and doesn't return in. So this one just kind of has straight sides. It flares out a little bit and then closes back up. So uh, it gives you a little bit more space for those larger garnishes to sort of sit just below the surface um, and not crowd the top of the glass. If you wanted to sip out of the sides, you still could. Fantastic. Any final thoughts now on the Pim's Cup? Well... Um, I closed all my windows so that I would have better sound quality. And right now, a Pim's Cup sounds really, really good <laughs> because it's quite warm in my apartment. Um, but I think the this drink has risen and fallen in popularity over time. It serves an incredible purpose in that it it is great at the in, in the afternoon. It's great at the beginning of a meal. It's great later in the evening when you want something to sip on that's refreshing and and just uh, to get you through to that next one. And um, I think it's a really incredibly versatile drink, as we've talked about, and and maybe underappreciated at times. Buy yourself a copy of the Flavor Bible. Uh, buy yourself a bottle of Pims and 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 just go wild. Hit hit up the fresh section of the grocery store. Sounds yes, like. <laughs> you absolutely can. <laughs> very, very nice. All right, then, Aaron, we're going to do it. We're going to head into the second section of the show here where we get to know yourself a little bit more as a drinker, bar professional, um, as we ask you our five weekly questions. All right. Let's kick it off with question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar. Now that one, that can be yours at home there, or that can be historically speaking, feel free to approach this one, whichever way you want to. Yes. Um, I would say that probably what, uh, what I invest the most time and energy into is probably scotch. Um, I like blended. I like Siegelwaltz. I like special expressions. You know, I would say that that, um, that takes up the, the majority of my back bar. I mean, it, it's a very worthy candidate right there. And it tastes like it's a cocktail in a glass in, a, in and of itself. It's so, got so much depth of flavor. Um, you know, put an ice cube on that and you're drinking, you know, three cocktails in one. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I don't think we've ever covered this on the show, but a phenomenal, I'm keen to hear your, keen to get your take on this. I feel like, we might have discussed it in Irish whiskey actually, but I feel like with Irish whiskey and with scotch, there gets to this point in maturation where the you know the, the the fruit character of the of the distillate it gets more dried fruits and then you get more nuts but then in some really special bottlings you get older than that and suddenly it comes back to fresh tropical fruit and that mm-hmm. is just something that that's that's the kind of scotch or irish whiskey that i want to drink all day every day Uh, Oh, absolutely. I love that kind of tropical character. Is that a phenomenon that you've experienced and can maybe explain? Uh, I, um, I am definitely not enough of an expert in the, in the process of, of whiskey maturation to know what's causing that. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it might have something to do with the, with just the, um, uh, eventually those, those tannins from the barrel, um, reducing their dominance, you know, as they age. Um, And so the true expression that the fruit characteristic that you're talking about, it's coming from the malted barley, right? That barley has a lot of very fruit forward flavors. And so those tannins sort of come in and block that a little bit um, at a certain level of maturation. And then once those have have moved past, you get that, that truer expression of that, um, you know, that, that grain fruit almost is, is, I always think of barley as, as being way more fruity than a normal grain. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, fantastic category of spirits right there. Question number two for you, which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? 
Oh, that is a tough one, right? Because undervalued is such a judgment. <laughs> um, I would say, um, which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued? Uh, probably a good knife. Good knife. Yeah, I'm gonna go with a good knife. I don't think that uh, I don't think that enough bartenders carry a great knife to help them uh, over the course of their shift. I I, I hear you on that one. Um, there's one I believe they call a tomato knife. It's a small. It's, it's the size of a paring knife, but it's serrated, and yes. that's one of my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I often find myself looking for a good knife if I'm doing, you know, if I'm at an offsite or an event, and then I have to make a knife that I don't want to use work. Um, that's never fun. And also, just you know, a, a blunt knife will do so much more damage. Oh, totally. I, my a, second pick was band aids. <laughs> yeah, good one. Yeah, <laughs> for that exact same reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have the good knife. You need the band aids. You need the, the band aids exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? So I, I could take this a couple of different directions. And uh, I would say that the, um, the piece of advice that, that sticks with me the most, it was a, a, an owner that I was working with um, uh, named Loretta Keller. And she, um, when I get into my head, when I'm thinking about something, I, I'm, I get hyper-focused on it. And um, in those moments, I will have a tendency to sort of... Uh, um, maybe put blinders on to what's going on around me and be really, uh, really dedicated. And she said, remember that when you're focused on something, you're still affecting the people around you and just be mindful of that. And um, I noticed from, a, I, I noticed that when people are working and you get into that go mode, you're in the weeds and you're just like cranking out drinks. Um, it's important to remember that the bartender or the, the bar back, the people on either side of you, um, and the customers across the bar from you, they're being impacted by what is going on in your head, even if you're not aware of it. And so that's something I like to think about uh, uh, quite a bit, is, is that piece of advice. To be, even when you're focused, even when you're hyper-focused and in the weeds, um, that you have an impact on the people around you. Yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's really good advice and and also does take me back to my kitchen days as well, where it's like you can work really fast while looking like you're actually going slow or vice versa. You can look like you're going really fast, but actually you're being so inefficient that and again, you're just you know, the negative impact of that is just compounding as yeah, the service goes exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. And you're you you as a as a member of a team, you know, it's important to remember that impact and and that each of you has um, you know, a responsibility to 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 keep keep the mood positive and heading in the right direction. Uh, it just makes the night so much better, uh, the service so much better um, when uh, when everybody is, is thoughtful in that way. Yeah, I think that's a real great piece of advice right there penultimate question right now if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be um i can i guess it would be easiest to explain this uh it is a theoretical bar it very well could be the bar that i own when i you know do my barista retirement mm -hmm. um in the, <laughs> the, the later <laughs> stages of my life but i would love a uh, to to have my my final visit to a bar be a bar on a beach with a wood fired oven that serves nothing but Negronis. Okay, interesting. Wood fired oven for food. Everything out of the wood fired oven and Negronis. That's that that would and beachside. That's what I'm. That's where I need to be. Beyond the beach, I mean, I'm seeing a heavy Italian influence here. Right. You know, you know, wood fired <laughs> well, oven. Well, also work in Brazil. They sell a lot of pizza in Brazil. Oh, well, then here we go. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. Maybe it'll one. be Pims. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Or just 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 throwing uh, just throwing cachaça and the Negroni there. Exactly, cachaça Negroni is all the way around. I bet that's phenomenal. Um, all right, let's do it. Let's uh, and um, you may have given us the answer here. We'll, we'll soon find out. <laughs> If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Okay, well, I'm going to take the departure from the Negroni here. The Negroni was to pair with that wood-fired oven. Okay. Um, so the last cocktail I would I would drink, I would probably do a rusty nail with a really exceptional scotch. So something that has lots of heather and and herbs on it to mix with the drambuie really nicely. Like I could sip on a rusty nail. And, and extend that out for a pretty good period of time. And it's just such an enjoyable drink. 
Um, so that's the one I go with. Definitely, definitely underappreciated right there. And and good to bring your other love back into it, you know. So if it wasn't the Negroni, at least the Scotch is getting the yes, representation. Yes, at least the Scotch made it back in. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Aaron, much like you, uh, I'm, I'm in a kind of fairly stuffy studio here, and and the, the thought of a refreshing Pim's cup right now is 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 almost becoming overbearing. So I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful ride. Uh, it's been a pleasure pleasure being here. I uh, um, am a fan of the podcast, and I'm glad to glad to be able to join you. Thank you, and, and and hey, congratulations! By the way, you know, seventy-five years this year for the U.S. Bartenders Guild, and I believe perhaps ten for yourself in your current position. So, you know, yes. congratulations all around. Yeah, it's actually going to happen. Uh, the, our we are going to have a seventy-fifth anniversary conference, and uh, it t- it's going to be right <laughs> at the anniversary, my ten-year anniversary in this role as a as the executive director. Thank you. Fantastic stuff. I mean, no, thank you guys. You, you know, you do incredible work. So, on behalf of, of 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 the bartenders that I know who listen to this show and just other the drinks community in general, thank you guys and thanks again for coming on today. You got it. We'll be back. Absolutely, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. We can cut that. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.